Hello, everybody, and thank you very much for coming to Pushkin House. We are delighted today to uh, host Donald Rayfield, who um, probably needs about as little introduction as us, I mean, if not less. He's um, Emeritus Professor of Russian and Georgian at Queen Mary, University of London, and the author of countless books in his own right, including biographies of Chekhov and Stalin, studies of Chekhov's works, um, a history of Georgia, and a comprehensive Georgian dictionary, um, and is also a prolific translator of Georgian and Russian literature, including uh, works by Osip and Nadezhda Mandelstam, um, Hamid Ismailov, from the original Uzbek, I learned today, um, and recently Dead Souls by Gogol. And um, he is uh, here today to talk about Kalimar Tales, um, for the second part of which he has uh, just come out with. It's a kind of monumental work of... Uh, short fiction uh, anthology by a uh, gulag prisoner and survivor, uh, Valam Shalamov. Um, it's, uh, I assume many of you have read it, um, but if not, it's a really remarkable work. Um, incredibly honest and clear-eyed um, to, to the extent that these incredibly horrifying things never become depressing. Um, but I'll stop wittering on and let uh, Arnold speak. So uh, thank you all very much for coming. I'd like to Donald Rayfield. Thank you. Um, this is the second, uh, uh, basically it's a translation of the second volume of the com fairly complete works of Shalama that came out in 2013, 2014 in Russia. And um, a very good addition compared to what we had before, and all they lack is notes. We can now be sure we actually have the, the text that he wrote. And how it write. Uh, Shalamov uh, once uh, ascribed his survival in the camps to his calligraphic handwriting. Uh, when he is called upon by an NKVD official to copy out files, uh, his handwriting is so good that it saved the official's job. And the official, in return, when it came across his file with an order for execution, put it in the stove. Um, so a calligraphic hand. Something that Chekhov also thought when in choosing a wife, that a uh, calligraphic hand was most important. Um, a sign of something else. But it means that his texts are very clear. And every now and again I checked with the archives, because I couldn't believe he'd written this, and uh, there was no mistake. His handwriting indeed is no, uh, has no, um, no faults. Well, there are a number of um, puzzles about Shalamov. Um, the Kalimar stories is, in fact, the, the, the title of the first of six books, collections of stories, which can vary from two pages to 30 pages. Um, and um, sometimes it's not, in fact, I'm, sure, I'm not sure it's ever possible to understand why certain stories went in one collection, uh, what the reason for the order of the stories is. Um, I think some academics uh, who are more ingenious than I am have found some sort of pattern to the architecture. Um, in this second volume, um, it, it seems a little clearer. Uh, the first um, section of these three books, called Sketches from Criminal World, which we've used as a title to distinguish it from the first volume, is... Um, basically non-fiction, uh, a series of diatribes, you might say rants, uh, about other writers who dealt with the criminal world and failed to face up to the fact that the professional criminal is not human. Um, the relation between intellectuals and criminals, uh, which is uh, complacency and sometimes complicity, uh, the, the peculiar tastes that criminals have in literature, which pretty well discredits whatever they read or have read to them, because they prefer to be read to rather than read themselves, and then the role of women in the criminal's world. Um, this is perhaps the most controversial of all, all Shalama's writing, and all that was written in one year, 1959, the great burst of, of uh, fairly vituperative energy, very effective, but you will disagree. Most people would disagree with a lot of it. And then come... Uh, a book, The um, Resurrection of the Larch, which is the idea of the larch tree that grows so 
so slowly in Kolyma, it takes 300 years, has witnessed everything the Russians ever have done in, in, in Kolyma, and it will not die. Take a branch of it, put it in a tin can, take it to Moscow, and it will still sprout green. There's something etern eternal in nature. Um, and then the last one, the glove, which in some ways is most horrifying, the way that uh, when you have pellagra, your skin detaches and they can pull your hand off as a glove and put it in a museum while you grow new skin. Um, and I suppose there is in that last book a, a, a theme of, of, of redemption. Um, but generally speaking, the, uh, although the, the, the Resurrection of the Large was written in the mid-60s or early 60s, and the glove was written in the late 60s and sometimes as late as 1972, some stories, the stories hop about chronologically. Sometimes he remembers his childhood in Vologda, that awful story about the squirrel, which is chased by the entire population of the town until they can kill it. Something about his view of humanity and animals. Uh, and then uh, stories at the end of his stay in Kaluma, when he's, in theory, a free man. He just can't leave the place, but he's no longer a prisoner. Um, so it's very difficult to, to know why he jumps from, uh, in one direction, why the stories are put in that order. And I've ceased uh, thinking about it. I've just tried to accept this how it is, it's a variety. Uh, some stories give you nightmares, some uh, you can go to sleep afterwards fairly peacefully, that may be the, may be the reason. Now, well, the way in which these stories have reached us um, is, um, I suppose, not untypical of, of uh, Soviet literary history. Um, Shalamov was doubly unfortunate um, that when he was released, he came back to a family that didn't want him anymore, his wife. Uh, had suffered herself uh, in his absence in, uh, when she was deported. Uh, his brother-in-law, who had been a member of the secret police, was sacked and had to become a bus driver. And his daughter decided that he was officially dead and he was a criminal anyway. She didn't want to know him. So he lost that family. In fact, uh, his grandchildren didn't even know who he was. Uh, two sons didn't... Uh, the name Shalamov was not allowed to be pronounced in the household. Um, and they only found out long after his death that he was a great writer and his work was already in this, uh, the Russian archives. And they probably regretted because uh, they lost all rights to publication. They would have been perhaps, if not millionaires, very well off by now. And his work passed, uh, this is something which nobody can agree about, uh, passed to a woman called Irina Siretinska, who was an archivist in the uh, Russian state archives of literature and who befriended him uh, in, in the late 60s. Now, as you may know, every archivist in Soviet times was under KGB supervision and had to have a security clearance. Recently, this has been revised. Uh, revived. They're all under FSB supervision now. So you think, well, if they take on a writer's work, uh, very often in Soviet times they would take on a writer's work and then do it in order to stop anyone having access to it. So they get all, all the manuscripts, all, all the forgotten publications, and they put, put in a stetschran. That would be it. And that's what Siretyanska did. Uh, the, his work was not accessible to outsiders until at the end of Piristroika. So some people regard her as an enemy. Some people regard her as his saviour. He regarded her as the saviour. He dedicated two of his books to her. Um, some of the claims she made that he, as he was dying, he dictated a whole volume of poetry to her contradict the evidence of other witnesses that he could no longer speak uh, coherently. Um, so we don't know. And then, strangely enough, um, when he became seriously ill, she broke off all relations with him on the ground she was a married woman and was not compatible with her marriage to have this, have this relationship. The problem with um, Shalama was that he had this habit of anyone who had been in the camps for a long time of never having a conversation if there was a third person present. If it's just you and someone else, then if you're denounced, you know who did it. If it's a third person, who knows who that third person is? And that habit stayed with him all his life, like not using utensils when he had eating directly from the bowl, going around with a towel around his neck, um, not using bedding on the, on, on the mattress and so on. He was fairly um, scarred. By, well, as everyone was by in the camps was scarred. But he was particularly scarred and it makes it very difficult to judge what his intentions were. Some of these stories were actually leaked to the West. Uh, he's, 
nobody's quite sure whether he was complicit in that or whether he was against it. Um, his attitude to Soviet power is also e e extremely ambiguous. Now, when you read these stories, of course, there, there are some very, very hard-line views. One of them is that the professional criminal who made the life of political prisoners hell by stealing them, killing them, exploiting them, uh, making them do all their work, um, he regarded them as not human and not uh, impossible to redeem. So all the Stalinist idea of reforging criminals through labor was to him a, a great lie. That's one, one strong thing. Um, unlike Solzhenitsyn, he does not believe in the redemptive power of manual labor. If you read one a day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, you get the idea that, that building a new boiler house uh, with uh, breeze blocks is somehow makes you a better human being and reconciles you to your fate. Uh, there's nothing of that in Enshallah, but that's an illusion he doesn't have. Well, having suffered this, suffered for half of his life uh, from uh, secret police and uh, compulsory labor, uh, from Stalinist um, uh, policies, the extraordinary thing about um, Shalom is that he does not renounce revolutionary activity. In fact, he idolizes it. There's a story in, in this collection, the gold medal, uh, it's the only story in which he actually did research. Everything here is written by memory. And you can tell that because he makes mistakes with dates and names. People even change their names from one story to another. But here he gets all the facts right. He actually got documents, went to historical uh, archives and so on. And it's the story of uh, Nadezhda Klimova, who as a young woman uh, in, uh, I think, 1909, uh, blew up the prime minister's dacha killed quite a few of his servants but failed to kill and injured his daughter but failed to kill the prime minister. And for, for Shalamov, this revolutionary, who's a social revolutionary, is a, is a hero. Just as Boris Savinkov, who was a social revolutionary, as ruthless as any of the Bolsheviks, uh, is also for, uh, for um, Shalamov a hero. And you think, how do you justify this merciless killing of the innocent, which the social revolutionaries went for in for even more enthusiastic than the Bolsheviks. I suppose the answer is that they actually uh, uh, endangered themselves. You go and attempt to blow up the prime minister, you're likely to be hanged. Uh, whereas a Stalinist uh, violence was rewarded, not punished, uh, generally speaking. It's, it's hard to say why. That, that's um, a, a, an extraordinary contradiction uh, about Shalamov. Um, other things are perhaps. Uh, are more understandable, his, his views are on nature. There are certain stories which are almost happy, uh, and it's because they have a bear in it, or a bullfinch in it, or a cat, or a dog, which show much more humanity and charity than any of the human beings. The male bear covers the female bear from the hunter's rifle so the female can escape, even though the male bear gets killed. Bullfinch distracts the hunter so the female wolf, the bird can get away, the cat helps him fish, uh, the dog uh, hates the guards, growls at them and attacks them, but defends the prisoners, uh, and so on. There's a fondness for animals, which of course makes him very particularly popular with the British public, and it's quite unusual in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in literature. The, um, and the other thing is his attitude to women. He admits that women are, are superior morally to men, but not much. Um, <laughs> so there's no idealization of them. They will, they will steal, they will connive, they will denounce. Uh, it's just that every now and again uh, they will perform a gratuitous act of compassion, whereas every prisoner learns never to do anything for anybody else um, because it only ends up being you, you good acts are punished for. So th there, is, uh, th there is this rather patriarchal um, uh, aspect to him, which explains uh, his, uh, partly his unhappiness that his first marriage had broken up. He then married, uh, a, I think, a surprisingly interesting uh, writer called Olga Woods. Uh, Olga Nikludova, rather, Nikludova. She wrote mainly for children. Uh, just that recently uh, I discovered a, a story by her called uh, Pamiti Muki, to the memory of Mufa, who's a black cat. Black cats often called Mufa, fly. And uh, it's clearly about uh, Shalama's last cat. 
and the way in which the neighbours persecuted it, putting barbed wire on the fence and uh, whipping it and denouncing it for having mange and then finally shooting it, and the way in which he is utterly destroyed by this. Um, but his marriage to, um, uh, to uh, Olga Nikudova didn't last. It lasted as long as she could stay in the country while he was in the flat, and she would just visit him once a week. Or So she was a writer, and he despised her writing uh, and made it quite clear, although I suspect it's quite good. And oddly enough, uh, Shalama's stepson, Sergei uh, Nikudov, who's a prominent uh, ethnologist now, doesn't want to have anything to do with the memory of Shalama or... Um, or, um, uh, or, uh, or, or, or his, even his mother. There's something uh, perpetuated uh, so that the family, family links are all broken, just as his grandsons had no idea who he was until recently. Um, and it's his inability to, to sustain relations. And when he came out of, uh, back from Kalima, he had a welcoming letter from Pasternak. It's one of the best stories, going to fetch a letter, a letter of Pastor Nuck in saying he's clearly a great poet, which is another question we have, we have to deal with. And yet, uh, well, Pastor Nuck, of course, died before Shalama could establish himself as a literary figure, but his friendship with Nadezhda Mandelstam, for whom he wrote two stories about the death of her husband and about the recovery of memory, uh, he quarreled with her. And largely because well, it may be because she was the centre of international attention she had around her Americans, uh, she had dissidents, she had um, uh, she, she was sort of a queen bee, uh, and he didn't get on. He quarrelled with Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn invited him to participate in, in the Archipelag. Well, Solzhenitsyn was notoriously difficult to get on with unless you accepted total subordination, and Shalama would, would never... And he disliked Solzhenitsyn's novels. He disliked the novel as a whole. Well, that's why these are short stories. The only long piece he wrote, he called an anti-novel, because he said novels are automatically falsifications once you have a novel structure. And his criticism of Russian writers, of Chekhov, Dostoevsky, are very, very sharp. Um, uh, and in some way, the Dostoevsky's account of prison in, in Omsk must be a lie, uh, because everyone is so nice in that prison, um, apart from the, uh, the, the chief. So those are, those are things about Shalama one has, 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 has to cope with. Now, there are, in those stories, I found there are several things that are, are enormously surprising. Um, one is, um, well, if you, if you take Holocaust literature as a whole, you can see there are some major differences. I mean, some people describe Kalama as Auschwitz without others. Um, on the other hand, uh, you weren't sure you were going to get killed, usually in, in Goldemar, even though the statistics were that you were unlikely to survive. I think people surviving a full 25-year sentence, 17 out of 537 managed it. So it was not much better than Auschwitz. Um, but um, it's the company that's different. And Auschwitz was full of, and uh, Theresienstadt particularly, was full of musicians, partly because it was essentially a place to exterminate Jews, and the musical world was strongly uh, uh, comprised of, of Jews. Whereas you get the sense in um, Kaluma that if they can get a, a military band together, that's quite an achievement. There's no question of having a string section or, mm -hmm. or a conductor. But what there is in Kaluma was what there wasn't in Auschwitz, and this is the most amazing thing, the number of, of, of extremely experienced senior doctors Kalima had a sort of medical ratio that National Health Service would just envy. Um, <laughs> consultants. <laughs> it doesn't. It's partly because Stalin's dislike of doctors. Ever since uh, a very senior um, neurologist, Bektirev, came home after examining Stalin, told us that I just ex examined a psychopath. Uh, he died a few days later. And you notice how doctor, the medical profession in, in Russia until the revolution was so respected that almost no doctors were arrested for, for um, revolutionary activities. The, the medical journals in Russia were uncensored. Doctors said what they liked, they did what they liked. They had very influential, bot the Botkin family with the Tsar and, uh, and so on, under Stalin, exact opposite. And so every leading doctor who'd been trained abroad and had thus become an international consultant 
was ultimately packed off as a probable poisoner and uh, uh, an assassin. So that you have this, these impressive uh, doctors uh, teaching uh, um, uh, Shalamov to be a paramedic, what the Russians call a feldsher, perhaps paramedic is too, too modern a word, but I couldn't think of any better word for feldsher. Um, really geniuses, and the only problem is they have no drugs, they have no nurses, there's no bedding. Um, but um, the, the operations that are performed uh, on the Shalamov and fellow prisoners uh, and sometimes on the reluctant staff of the NKVD men who, who would like to be operated on by a non-prisoner but find that the prisons are, prison doctors are much better. Um, so that's one extraordinary thing that the medical facilities, and again, his life is saved several times uh, by doctors. Well, it's a traditional in Russian prison literature that the saving grace in a Russian prison is a doctor. It goes back to Dr. Gass in Moscow, who was in charge of Moscow's prisons in the, in the 1830s. He saw off Dostoevsky um, to, to almost... And when the prisoners had to set off on their... Some, very often on foot to Siberia, Dr. Gass would appear with co uh, coins and sweets and distribute them on their way. I don't see the head of the prison service in Britain doing this. Um, and then there were uh, famous prison doctors. Uh, actually, even in Soviet times, there was Faina Rosenblum in Buturki, who, uh, whose job was meant to be to revive prisoners so they could be tortured further. Uh, but even so, she, she was called the, the fairy of Buturki. They finally arrested her um, because she was being too nice to the prisoners. But it was a tradition in Russian prisons, and you can see it from uh, Chekhov's uh, journey to Sakhalin. The, 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 the one person in a prison you could rely on if you were a prison was a prison doctor. And in, in, this is one thing in, in, in Shalamov is, is, is the doctor. Well, um, those, those are peculiarities in Shalamov. Now, what makes him a great writer? You can't say that he's a great stylist. In fact, he's the anti-stylist. It's a very bare language. Like Tolstoy, he doesn't mind using the same adjective six times in, in one paragraph. Uh, he doesn't mind repeating himself to make sure you understand. Um, you can't misunderstand Shalamov. It's the one thing about Tolstoy, like Tolstoy. Um, his observations of color, of um, weather, of scenery, topography. He was trained as a topographer in Goldemar on these expeditions, which they looked for new gold uh, seams and, and coal. Uh, so his sense of landscape is, 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 is super. I don't know of any modern Russian writer. It's, it's the bleakest landscape you could possibly find. But his sense of it and the vegetation uh, is extraordinary. So you trust him utterly on that. And I suppose the most difficult thing in uh, short stories which are so autobiographical, you're not sure whether they're fiction or recollection, is his verbal recollection of conversations. Well, I suppose what saves a writer for Colin Mai is the conversations were very short. He didn't want to be caught talking. He didn't want to say anything and get into trouble. But uh, So it's, it's very significant things are said in three or four words. And, and that laconicism, which is characteristic of Shalamov, it, it makes him an extraordinary writer as far as di dialogue is concerned. You trust his memory. Most people you don't trust when they give long verbatim recalls of, of, of conversations. Now, um, looking at the the picture of, the, of <coughs> Stalinism that it gives is um, a sort of hierarchy um, of, of people in which some are better than others. Uh, sometimes this coincides with Solzhenitsyn's hierarchy. In Solzhenitsyn, the intellectual comes right at the bottom. Um, in uh, the day in the life of Ivan Denisich, it's the intellectuals who are, who are the goners, the dachadyagi, who lick other people's bowls, have no dignity left, who plead, who, <coughs> who steal. And to a certain degree, Shalamov agrees. He says a slap in the face is enough to deal with any intellectual. They're the ones that go faster. On the other hand, he doesn't believe that the peasants survive. They're the people who are, who are strong, well-built, used to country, are... They, they collapse first uh, very often. He agrees with Solzhenitsyn that uh, the, relig uh, the religious believers survive better. Priests, 
Mullers, and particularly the Baltics, uh, the Protestants become, um, they somehow, because they believe there is life after death, for some reason it, it, it enables them to, to go on longer. So, although uh, Shalom was the son of a priest, an extraordinary priest, he was, his father was a, a missionary who actually was in Alaska for some years uh, with the Russian communities there. Um, but he himself was, a, was an avowed atheist. He still got a Christian funeral on the grounds that as he'd been baptized and was the son of a priest, he had to have one. Um, but that wasn't his wish. Um, but he, and he does admire the Christians for their, for their knowledge of the Bible. He even admires one of the women doctors who tries to give him a Bible, but he, he, the New Testament, he refuses that. Um, so there is that respect for religion. The military, he particularly uh, values. Um, the one successful or nearly successful rebellion in in in, in, Kaluma, in, in, in the previous volume is that of the Vlasov soldiers, those Russian uh, prisoners of war who decided to would be better to fight for the Germans rather than die of starvation in a prisoner of war camp. And when they're recaptured in Italy, they're sent straight to Kaluma. And they're the ones who attempt an armed escape, trying to seize guns, kill guards, and, and make for the airfield, see if they can get, get, a, get, a, get an airplane. Now, that is admired, uh, that the military, um, although um, he didn't um, serve. So there, there is in a hierarchy which the military and the priests are superior human beings. Um, and to a certain degree, uh, doctors and scientists admires, but is, has no illusions about the Russian peasant or the redeemability of, of the Russian uh, Russian criminals. Now, the for many people, uh, the most interesting is the analysis of the of the Russian criminal world, the professional criminal world, the vori, or I translate it as gangsters because they don't operate; they operate as a clan rather than as individuals. Now, as I said, he feel, feels that they're not human, they're not redeemable, they're hereditary subhumans. Um, they're very dangerous, and uh, the only thing you can do is keep, keep away from them. But he's analyzed them uh, very carefully. Um, a lot of work has been done recently by, by um, uh, anthropologists on, on the Russian criminal world, um, with, uh, which has been losing its principles. Vorya Zakonya used never to go near a church and they never married. Now, of course, they build churches and they they do marry. But um, and that used to be seen as a sort of virtue. Now they they had they had principles. They had a language, a language called Fienya. Now the problem for me as a translator was um, that uh, criminal language uh, can be reproduced in, in, in detective novels and so on. But it's specific to a particular decade, even to a particular city. So in Dickens, it's no longer comprehensible to us. In 18th century, there was a criminal language. Um, all this has been forgotten, and you have to be a specialist. The point about criminal language is that it shouldn't be understood by the police. So every 10 years, you have to change it. Um, uh, whereas Kenya has been fairly stable since the 18th century. It's a sort of mixture of Yiddish and a bit of Czech and a bit of Tata and a bit of Russian, uh, uh, a creative language. It doesn't occur in large chunks in, in, in Shalom, if it just mainly is terminology. We would know better if, um, we, if um, Shalom's own dictionary of Finya survived. He says that the only prose work he wrote when he was a prisoner in Kaluma was at the request of one of the free uh, men there, a dictionary of a local Fenya, and 600 words he, he gathered together and gave a translation. This would have been a gift, of course. Unfortunately, this man, he gave it to Padasyonov, who was run over by a truck and killed, and the dictionary has been lost. So th that, that is a linguistic uh, strata, which uh, even if the translator were a professional criminal, I don't think... Um, he could easily deal with, and we had to be replaced every now and again. But it's part of Shalama's extraordinary era for language that he just 
bring in these words, and he does explain them uh, quite often. But uh, that, that, that is, a, is a translator's uh, problem. The other translator's problem is um, that Shalamov does what actually Dostoevsky does occasionally, which forgets his characters' names. Uh, the, the patronym changes. Uh, so you get the same character again. You even get the same incidents again, like the, the rebellion by the, the, return, the uh, repatriated soldiers uh, is dealt with twice. Um, the last battle of Major Pugachev and the Green uh, Procurator, and it's slightly differently each time. Um, all the medicinal uh, expeditions which they have to gather dwarf pine needles for vitamin C and bring it back and then stew, make it into a horrible syrup that prisoners are forced to swallow. Uh, that, that occurs uh, several times. So there is a certain amount of redundancy. Um, but um, I didn't think this should be edited. Uh, just as his mistakes in chronology and, and, and names uh, should be edited either. Um, so that, that was a principle of uh, you do not correct the author. You can correct, correct the translator by all means, but you don't correct, uh, correct the author. Right, well, this is, as I said, just two volumes of, of Shalabas that we have now produced. This is the second one. Uh, what about the rest? Well, one thing is, is the poetry. Um, for one thing, a poet should translate poetry. For another, Shalama's poetry doesn't seem to be written by anyone like Shalama. It it's, belongs to another world. Uh, he makes it quite clear in his quotations uh, that the poetry he loves is romantic and symbolist. Block. Um, angels. Girls singing in choirs. And you think, how is this possible? Uh, how do you reconcile the two? It's another. There are one or two poems which could have been written by Mandelstam uh, about oppression, but most of them are, 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 are symbolist. So that's another world. Um, there's also a, uh, he wrote a play, Anna Ivanovna, which is based on uh, his story about the uh, engineer Kipriev, uh, who invented a way of re repairing light bulbs. And as the prison camps had to be lit up with high wattage light bulbs. This was a great salvation, and it saved that, that engineer's life. That became a play. Um, and he wrote uh, uh, memoirs which actually cover the same material uh, as the stories, uh, perhaps not so well told as when they're put in, in fictional form. Now, w what is the fictional form that he puts there? He sometimes calls himself Shalamov. He sometimes just calls himself I, sometimes he calls himself Andreev, sometimes he calls himself Christ, which is a rather extraordinary name to give himself. Um, and um, he relates his experience as a, as a passive prisoner, learning how to, how to escape how, or how to, how to survive um, by keeping as low profile as possible. Um, and he makes several promises uh, that, uh, that he will keep, um, one of which is uh, that he would never write a petition or ask for anything, and another is he'd never do to anyone else what was done to him, that is, force people down the mines. And yet there is one story um, in which there's a man uh, in his hospital when he's already a paramedic who washes floors uh, and... Uh, Shalom decides that the floors don't need this washing and this is surplus labour and he better go do some proper work down the mines and, send, and has him put on the list going down to the pit face and the man begs him and he's hard and then he's found hanging in the stables a suicide which seems to contradict all the principles that he originally uh, set out for himself. So it's, uh, without, um, without any real apology or any awareness of, um, of, of a contradiction between the principles and, and what he's recording about himself. Um, Shalom doesn't seem capable of feeling remorse. Well, he's got very little to be remorseful for. He's got a lot to be resentful about. Uh, but remorse is not one of them. In the first book, there are a number of stories which uh, are based on pre-trial detention. And this uh, you find common in, in Soviet prison literature. The idea that before you're tried, when you're sitting in Buturki or Yeforkova, 
however horrible the conditions and uh, however horrible the interrogations and torture, this in fact is paradise compared with what is coming. Because when you're in a cell of 50 men, largely intellectuals, you tell each other stories, you exchange experiences, you are at a sort of university. Uh, Ivan of Razumnik's um, uh, memoirs is one of the first prisoners to uh, experience this and then survive, thanks to the German occupation. Uh, same thing, Solzhenitsyn has the same idea, in his, uh, particularly in his uh, Fjernkrugi, uh, that um, the Roman prison is a sort of university in Russia. And of course, while you're there, you dream of going to the camps and having fresh air and something to do with your hands. And that's when the, when the disillusion comes. But in this second book of stories, there is no Roman prison story uh, there. And there's very little of the, of, of the childhood or, um, or, or the uh, early stories, some memories of his time in, in, in the Urals. Well, I, I'll um, stop there if you have questions. Um, yeah. Um, or, uh, um, a couple of things, yeah. Um, I think the difference between Solzhenitsyn and uh, Shalamov in this idea of redemption through labour, um, Shalamov in his books recounts how the, the only way to survive mm. was to avoid labour. Yeah. And that the idea of redemption through through the kind of backbreaking gold mine labour is, is yeah. just nonsense. Yeah. Um, and in fact, to me, that seems quite a Russian, uh, sort of folkloric view of labor. In uh, Russian folk tales, um, we don't have the kind of European idea that hard work gets reward. It's often completely chance. Hmm. And that comes through a lot in Shalamov, I think. Yes. I mean, Solzhenitsyn regards himself as in the major tradition of Russian writing. So he follows Tolstoy mm-hmm. and Dostoevsky simultaneously. Uh, that uh, pr- prison is what makes you. Um, and people who look at Solzhenitsyn quickly say, well, he only spent five years and it was at one of the mild camps and just putting up breeze block power stations is, is a double compared with in Kalimai minus 60 um, uh, going through the uh, quicksand that bears gold. Um, and Solzhenitsyn wanted to write novels. Uh, and they, they're very clearly philosophical novels. You can see how much there is of Tolstoy in yeah, Definitely. Yeah. Um, the way in which uh, the, he portrays Stalin exactly the same way as Tolstoy portrays Nicholas I um, as a sort of head of a pyramid of terror. Um, so so the, the ambitions were... The other thing that Solzhenitsyn, of course, being a military man, um, was respected by, uh, by a lot of people in the establishment, Tverdovsky, yeah. and that was the reason why... Um, uh, a Day in the Life of Ivan Denisic could be published, yeah. and um, Shalamov could not be published. And there was just one story uh, published in '65, a short story about going to uh, get, get dwarf pine needles, the least controversial of all the stories. And it was pu- pu- published in Sielski um, Maladjosh or something like that. And when it came out, the entire editorial board was sacked, which is, although it's a harmless story compared with. Mm-hmm. Uh, stories by Abramov or, 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 or Solzhenitsyn. One can't see why, why this mm-hmm. aroused that sort of fury. But I think the, Solzhenitsyn had connections. He had connections in the, in the arts world. Um, he was respected by, by military men by, and by, uh, even by, by people in the Politburo like Furtseva. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, um, they, they put up with him as long as they could. Yeah. But Shalamov, they weren't prepared to put up with anything. He, he he comes across as as almost a nobody a lot of the time. He he, he considers himself to be. I think Solzhenitsyn had this idea that that the person was uh, could transcend their situation and and be and retain humanity. Whereas Shalamov, it, it seems, humanity is how is your survival. Yes, pretty much. Yes, other, there are other factors peculiar. That, uh, you see that Shalamov has no admiration for the West. You're, when his stories were published in the West, he didn't appear to be pleased at all. He appeared to be annoyed uh, more than anything else. He d- clearly didn't think it was relevant. On the other hand, he's, no, he's not a Russian nationalist by any means. He doesn't share a socialist conviction that this is the country, uh, the, the world's messiah. Um, he regards it as a hellhole. Um, <laughs> 
But um, he refused to see that, that, that there is an alternative anywhere else or, or anything. Hmm. He doesn't really consider alternatives. No, I mean, he mentions the fact that all these Russian soldiers who fought for the Germans in Italy came back wearing silk underwear. Um, he suggests they had, you know, that life was much better, but it doesn't, doesn't lead to any, any conclusions. He's re- remarkably well-educated in things that most people don't know about. I certainly didn't. Uh, when he describes what the criminals like to have stories, they like to have read to them. It's a whole lot of French uh, sub-literature, from Jules Verne to Gaboriau, all these detective stories of the 19th century, uh, in which Alexandre Dumas is perhaps the greatest of all these writers. And he has an extraordinary knowledge of, uh, of second-rate French literature translated for uh, servant classes in Russia. Um, and he also has an extraordinary knowledge of... Um, Obscure science, right. Dr. Bitch's uh, classification of colour uh, from Dusseldorf, which is something I, I googled and Google could not find. But, um, <laughs> but, but the, the, his, his mind was an extraordinary mm. storehouse. Um, and whether it's uh, that uh, Count Monte Cristo and all that uh, has some sort of relevance, and Jules Verne living in the wilds, um, away from civilization. Uh, defying people who want your death, well, that, that has some appeal. Although he despises the criminals for liking only this literature, not wanting to hear a novel by Tolstoy or Dostoevsky mm-hmm. or Anna Karenina, but they don't want to have Livin or, um, or, or, or Kitty in it. They just want the Vronsky mm-hmm. Anna and the, the train bit. Um, <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, his, 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 his literary associations are, 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 are very, very strange. But it's another one of those contradictions because he. Mm-hmm. Uh, repeatedly talks about how um, thought is uh, leads to death, and the the less you think, the more you can survive. And any wasted energy on thought would be uh, less energy you can warm yourself with. Um, yes. And yet he does seem to have this incredibly sponge-like memory, even yes. for things before the camp. Um, yes. So, yeah, those contradictions are, are just sort of all the way through, and yeah. it's a fascinating kind of psychological portrait. It, it, it is. Um, his, um, yes, his portrait of foreigners when they're coming from the Urals, of the, the Germans and the Englishmen who come to try and make boilers work. Mm. And in fact, needs a local Russian to, rather Leskovian idea, foreigners yes. mess around with their machinery, can't make it work. And some Russian just holding up a wrench and a hammer. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the Americans who bring uh, yes. spades. Yes. Um, Although this is one of the surprising things, particularly in the first book, is the contribution <coughs> of, the, of, of the Americans to, to the whole system of the Gulag, um, the, who brought the bulldozers in that would uh, make the road and also bury the corpses, because they couldn't bury the corpses. Uh, they just put them down with heaps of stones. They couldn't get into the panel. And these great shiny American bulldozers come and then 90-ton diamond trucks and the barbed wire and the, the meat and the spam and the, uh, the glycerine from the machinery which yeah. the, the prisoners all eat as honey. Um, and um, the, the, there was the, America, the American spades, which yeah. have wonderful blades, but the handles don't suit Russia, so they all have to remove the handles and make proper Russian handles that read. Uh, so Russian spade has to reach your chin um, to get the leverage. Um, yeah, um, and the Canadian flour, which is so nutritious, you don't excrete anything. Your body uses every bit of it. Um, yeah, there are there are all kinds of, um, and in fact, that kind of slightly reminds me of a question I uh, I sort of wanted to bring up, which was um, he he acts a lot like a kind of documentarian a lot of the time. Um, he he has this brilliant, very detailed memory. You really believe every detail that he comes out with, and yet he repeatedly said that he never wanted anybody to learn anything from his books. That he, he wanted to be—it was n- nothing. You could not learn anything from this experience at all. Yes. Uh, well, I think there are at least two things I've learned from it. Um, one is how to handle a wheelbarrow. Um, admittedly, a Russian wheelbarrow has the wheel right in the front. Mm. But you've got to, when it's empty, you've got to lift your arms right high to get there, get, get your muscles back. And the second, I find actually this is a feature of certain great writers. They always tell you something that's really useful. Like you cannot read Anna Karenina carefully without learning how to make strawberry jam. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you cannot read Muriel Spark without losing, finding out how to lose weight and how to get a job when you've lost your job. Um, and in the case of um, Shalama, perhaps the most interesting thing, which I subsequently observed was true. If you have a small flock of, of sheep or goats and you wish them to come out individually when you call them, the secret is each goat has to have a different vowel in its name. Because the goats only listen to the vowels. Um, in the story about the, the, uh, the, the, golden cro- the cross, which is, his blind father has to smash up his golden cross and so that they also keep goats, and this is the secret of their goat keeping. Um, so that's something you never forget. I mean, you may not be able to apply it immediately, but, um, <laughs> but um, there are certain writers who, who certainly tell you nothing. I've read, uh, never learned anything from Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, no, no practical. Nothing real, anyway. Advice, no. Um, yeah, so long if you do learn things. Yeah, yeah. And if you wanted to be a paramedic, there's an awful lot of things you learn there. Mm. Symptoms, how to detect the malingerer. Yeah. Um, yeah. This um, he he does seem to sort of give out information, not unconsciously. It's almost like a, a kind of a tick. He can't help but yes. try, to, like try to to impart information. Well, he was proud of himself. I think proud of becoming a paramedic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was the only salvation when they decided they had to train their own paramedics to keep the labour force. Well, and the point about Kaluma was when it began to get bad. In 37-38, the NKV didn't care how many people it killed, shot or worked to death, because there were always millions more being arrested uh, in the prisons uh, to be unloaded. And it was only when the war started and you needed everyone at the front who was fit, there was a shortage of labour in Kaluma, they started to think, well, we'd better keep them alive then. And that's when they started training their paramedics and you get this explosion of uh, uh, medical training of remarkably high quality. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a feature all the way through. Um, the doctor, I mean, the uh, the gangsters are yeah. are obsessed with uh, getting let off work as well. Um, yeah. They are allowed um, yeah. pretty much uh, by the doctors, and so um, the doctors do seem to have a kind of power of a sort. Yes, although if a gangster wants to rest in a hospital bed and, and he's not ill, and the doctor refuses him, the doctor may well be found with his throat cut. Mm. So. Um, and doctors then have to uh, reconcile themselves to the immorality of wearing trousers that have been stolen from somebody that gangsters given them as a reward mm. for their treatment. Yes, the doctors are compromised, but um, mm. yeah, even so, they are. They yeah, hold out the, the moral. Better. Yeah, there's a kind of moral. Well, the lack of morals uh, yeah. when the gangsters. It's, it's more moral relativity. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. Um, Amorality, maybe yes. rather than immorality. Yes. Um, and and his, well, um, actually a couple more things. I think before yes. we open it up. Yes. Um, that the um, his his lack of chronology and his also I thought his his uh, fluffing of the names or, or yes. maybe it was slightly deliberate um, do, do seem to kind of universalize the experience. To an extent, don't they? I mean, yes, I, I suppose. Or so. even though you, you hop from one period to another, mm. uh, from a period when it's absolutely intolerable, 37, 38, mm. uh, to periods when it was just barely tolerable, and periods when it's almost acceptable, mm. um, towards the end, when he's working as a paramedic and just dealing with basically bureaucracy. Mm. Um, were the, I mean, when in these volumes, are they set out by publishing date or by writing date? Or? Uh, they were, the publishing history was as soon as Perestroika began, odd stories began appearing in, in various uh, Soviet press, say from 88 onwards. Mm. And then finally books started to appear in, in, in 89 and 1991. Mm. Uh, very often the texts were, were, were bad. And those were the texts that John Glad used when he did his Kalimar stories for Penguin. Mm. He, he used just the first volume and it took a few stories from, uh, from elsewhere but he didn't have um, uh, didn't direct access to them and then Siratinska took the stuff out of the Stetskram at the end of Perestroika and started to as they called it Abrabatovich mm-hmm. um, bring it in order and uh, it's now actually all online um, in fact a lot of material on Shalom is online in Russian 
uh, with uh, actually sometimes the manuscripts who gradually come in line. So if you don't trust the, the text, you can look at the, uh, the, the manuscript. So uh, access is complete. But um, as I said, the rights have now moved from Seretinsko's son, I think Rigosik, mm-hmm. now has them. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is the person who decides who translates, who publishes, right. and at what cost, uh, which I don't know about, but probably NYRB knows about. Um, yeah. Whereas the actual relatives of Shalalov have nothing to do with it. I'm usually in Soviet tradition, if you're the daughter or son of a great writer, you become the curator of the Dom Musier, uh, and uh, that is your life. Even if you're a grandchild, on the case of the Tolstoy, it's a beautiful generation. It's an inherited um, uh, sort of temple which you are the priest. Uh, but in the case of Shalamov, um, there is no priest. Mm. Mm. Um, well, given that he was the such an atheist, it makes. Yes, yes, I suppose so. And yeah. I suppose that uh, uh, Russian archivists may be responsible to KGB, but actually many of them are extremely well trained. Mm. Uh, there are good state mm. standards of how to manage uh, manuscripts and publish them, and they're, be, they're still observed, mm. so one has to be grateful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, let's, um, let's just say a little about um, his... I think, if, if, if you haven't read the books, um, although many of you probably have, but um, his, his view of humanity as just the strongest animal is really something incredibly novel, yes. I thought. He points out that horses don't last more than yeah. a year or two in uh, Bitpenis, in Kaluma, that no domestic animal survives yeah. there. Human beings last longer, and some of them even 20 years, mm. and that no, no animal will. I, I suppose that's leaving the wildlife apart. Uh, they have wildlife since survive. Mm. Um, Yes, he has a great uh, fondness for animals. That story of the squirrel, which is pursued by the entire population of Wallachda, uh, suggests that... Um, and the duck, I think. Is, the yes, well. the duck and the leg what this. Yeah. Uh, that, that, um, yes, determined not to be killed. Mm. Yes, that's, that's a very, very unusual... Um, it's, it is fascinating. Um, and, and very different from... Well, very different from, from anybody else I've read, actually. Yes, it reminds one of Saki, where the, the animals always win out over the human beings. Um, the ferret kills the ant that you detest. Yeah. Um, Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pushkin House podcast, brought to you by the UK's oldest independent Russian cultural centre. This episode was recorded live at Pushkin House on the 27th of February 2020 and was edited and produced for Pushkin House by me, Rafi Hay. Our thanks to Donald Rayfield and New York Review Books. Sketches of the Criminal World by Valnam Shalamov, translated by Donald Rayfield, is on sale at the Pushkin House Bookshop now.